Lisa Miller from Menswear by Woman podcast. I hope you're all doing very well. Right, today's episode, I'm just, um, well, I don't know how to introduce him to you all because I think he is like the master of menswear. He has to be menswear fashion uh, designer. You call him, I mean, when I read his biography, I'm just absolutely amazed and fascinated that he has actually said yes to come on to my podcast his name is toby clark and i'm gonna get him on board toby thank you so much for coming on to menswear by woman podcast it is an absolute honor to have you on board i mean i'm i'm actually so so grateful to you for inviting me on it's fantastic i i have to admit i i've been in lock i was in lockdown for new zealand for quite a few years and i wasn't aware of your podcast so i didn't know there was someone doing amazing stuff talking about menswear and when i've looked at who else you've had on i thought this is really really brilliant so thanks thanks for asking me it's great thank you toby um i can't i mean i was reading your biography and you know what you've done and how you've worked with Margaret Howe, obviously. Um, you know, all of the stuff that you've done. If anybody actually goes onto Toby's website, please do and look at his biography and you will realise how much he has done. It is absolutely amazing what you have done. Being nominated for British Fashion Council for, you know, best fashion designer for menswear. Wow. <laughs> and you're an ex-student of the Royal College. Which is like, yeah, so am I. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, like, I think the thing with those, those it's all, I always find, I always a little bit conflicted with when you do a website because you kind of need to sell yourself a little bit, but yeah. also you, t- you kind of want to get the balance right. So, you know, like that thing with, with the British Fashion Awards, I mean, obviously it was for the work I did for Margaret. So it was Margaret's name that was that was put forward with Alexander and, and um, Burberry. But, you know, I was heading up the menswear and it was a huge honour, you know, to be to get the men, Margaret's menswear nominated. It was amazing. Um, it really was amazing. It was great. It was really nice. And I, I know that th- I think the comment that came back was that Margaret was so consistent. Right. And I think, you know, that's very true. But, but that's very much what we tried to work on was getting a consistency of quality and style and aesthetic and fabric and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, some designers can lose themselves sometimes yeah. where they kind of drift off into a different space and they yeah. kind of forget who they are. Yeah. But I think, you know, the one thing Margaret's always done, anyone that loves Margaret will know is she's been so consistent all through her career. And I think that's why people love her. You know, she's got that um, just kind of, it's like a comfort factor, I think. You know, you go back because you know it's always going to be good. So how, yeah. when did you want to, I mean, how did you know that you wanted to become a menswear designer? Uh, I think, you know, if I look back to being a child, I, I used to love action men. Um, right, okay. I had the dude, the army dude with the rubber dinghy that I used to, you know, upside my, I had, we lived in Wales and we had a pond underneath the house and right. one well, the garden underneath my bedroom window. And I used to lower the action man down in his dinghy into the water, into this little pond. And yeah. Found that kind of really exciting, and I guess it's you know it's like a a, a girl's Barbie, isn't it, or a girl's Cindy? It's a yeah. male doll that, as a as a boy, you can, you feel you can play with. But yeah. I think I was really fascinated with all the kit, all the gear, you know, his trousers, his jumper, his hats, his boots, you know, yeah. his his gun, all that kind of stuff. I just found it really interesting. I suppose it was like a an identity. Right. So I was fascinated by that. Um, and then the other thing as well was 
mum was, I think she was very creative and she kind of liked, she encouraged me to learn about tactile elements in life. Um, so she'd always get me to touch things and, you know, touch wallpaper and touch fabrics and that kind of stuff. And mum came from a sheep station in New Zealand and she would have all the wool sent oh. over, uh, the bales of wool, and she used to spin it. You know, she, she knew how to hand spin. Um, and when she would use, she'd spin the, the wool into little intervals of wool. But before that process, she needed to make, get it into a hank. And when I used to watch television, I used to have to put my hands out um, for her to wind the hank around it. And I was, I was about seven or eight, I guess. And I used to like, just look at her thinking, like, what, what's she actually doing? But whatever she's doing, it's quite interesting because it's coming from a bale. Then it's going into yarn. Then it's going into balls. And then she's knitting it into something, which is an end product. Wow. And I think it just, I think I just got the bug from that. And I was just like fascinated. And um, I started to design with it, like, had, you know, pe pencils and crayons. And I was kind of designing jumpers and stuff. And I remember saying to my mum, you know, can I do it? Can I have a go, you know, doing what you're doing? Can I knit something? Can I, and I was hoping she'd say, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll make a jumper. Uh, and, you know, it'd be a jumper that I could wear. I think that's basically, I was probably like, you know, thinking I might get like a colour and a jumper that I'd really like. Um, and she said, oh, no, no, that, no, you're not ready for a jumper. Um, that, that's like too far advanced. You can't just go from nothing to a jumper. First of all, you've got to learn how to do the knitted peggy squares, the swatches. So I did all that, learned plain stitch, pearl stitch, all that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and then I think she could tell I was kind of, you know, I, I'd probably progressed to about nine or ten years old at this stage. And. I was keen to make something, an object. And uh, she said, well, look, you know, what would be amazing is if you, if you actually made a, um, a teapot cosy um, because, you know, when we all have our tea as a family in the evening, you need something to keep the teapot warm. Right. Um, and she said, you know, with wool, that's a natural um, insulator, so it'll keep it warm. But you'll also learn about form and function and, you know, the hole for the handle and the hole for the yeah. spout, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did. And I did it in a stripe and it was natural wool. And what's fascinating about it is, you know, and I talk to students, um, I've still got a photograph of it. And I say to them, actually, you know, that's what that, that moment in time when I was 10 years old, I learned the kind of Bauhaus theory of form and function. Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing that I've always gone back to that in all of all of the things I've done in my career. I've always gone back to that process of, you know, how does it fit? How does it work? How does it function? Um, so it was actually, it was actually really good. And that, that was the, that was the catalyst of it. Um, and then I think I'd say when I was doing A-levels, I'd chosen art because I'd always liked drawing. Um, and I remember there was, we had like a project where we were asked to do some silk screen printing Yeah. and it was on silk. And it sounds now it's to me, I sort of think back and I think, gosh, like, what was I? What was I actually doing then? But it was actually we were printing uh, butterflies onto the silk, and I didn't. I think like block printing and screen printing. I didn't really know what I was doing. But this amazing teacher um, who really supported me came over to me and said, "Toby, you're really good at this." And that was the moment when you know, a teacher says, to you, "You're good at something." Yeah. It's like, am I? Am I? You know, like really? Um, and. I think that was the thing. And when she said that to me, I think I just started thinking, oh, so I could actually, like, go into clothes. I was, I was 18, you know, I could actually make clothes or something, you know, and then you read a few books and you realise that there are things like fashion designers as a career. 
Yeah. Um, and that was it. Yeah, I, I just decided, thinking I actually want to be a fashion designer. And you know, bearing in mind I was in Wrexham in North Wales, and this was sort of 1988, and people had heard of Pierre Cardin, Giorgio yeah. Armani. Yeah. You know that kind of stuff. Yeah. People just laughed at me. They just laughed and. And so I just said, well, you know, good luck, because you can't, you can't do that. It's not possible. You know, your even tutors said to me, you can't do that, Toby, um, which was interesting, really. Um, but that was, yeah, that's sort of how, that was the, the background to it. And I've always been quite determined. So I just thought, well, you know, I'll keep going until I can't go any further. And yeah, it just carried on going. So, Toby, was it difficult once you came out of the Royal College of Art to find jobs and work and all that stuff? I think it was it was a very difficult time because uh, there was a recession going on. Yeah. Um, I, I graduated in '93, and I know uh, my contemporaries. It was back then. There was only seven places right. at the Royal, which yeah. wow. incredible. And um, I know that about four or five of them all really struggled to get work. It mm. took years for some of them to get work. Wow. Um, and, and there was one particular boy who was so good and so talented, and I couldn't believe that he couldn't get work. It, it was incredible. And But I think about five years later, he was appointed, I think, by Mark Jacobs um, to do Louis Vuitton's menswear. Um, mm. and, he, and then I was so stoked to know that he'd got it because he so deserved it. But... It was very difficult, but I was—I I just got really lucky. Um, what I perceived as my weakness, yeah. let's say, I came from Wales. I'd always been told that that was going to make things really difficult for me, that I couldn't do fashion from Wales because Wales wasn't, you know, fashionable, <laughs> that kind of basic yeah. ignorance. Um, but at the time, Ireland had done a fashion week um, yeah. where John Rosher had become Irish fashion designer of the year and done really, really well. And... I think Wales must have looked at that and thought, well, that's a small country. It's near us. You know, it's similar to us. Why can't we do something like that? Yeah. And I didn't know about it. But on the day of graduation, we've come out of the Royal Albert Hall and I've yeah. still got the, that crazy gown on that never fitted. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, it's falling off, <laughs> the hat's falling off your head. Yeah. The gown's falling off your shoulders. <laughs> I and remember. You remember, right? Yeah, I remember. We, we got graduated at the Royal Albert Hall as well when I was at the Royal College. And the gown never yeah. fitted. That never fitted. So, so, and I came back and went back up to the seventh floor, where we all were then on the menswear. And there was this piece of paper on my desk that the tutor, Henrietta, who was lovely, had put there. And it was was Welsh Fashion Awards. And I was just thinking, like, what what on earth is this? Welsh Fashion Awards? I didn't, I couldn't really make sense of it because I didn't know where I was coming from. And it was. It had on it all the thing I remembered seeing was it had on it prize fund three thousand pounds. Wow! And I know in today's context, yeah. um, student debts are very significantly large, and that's hideous and awful, and it's yeah. so wrong. Yeah. And I know now students have to get jobs in the evening to keep yeah. themselves going, but yeah. back then we were blessed. The state paid for our, our course fees. Um, but even so, we still had overdrafts, and mine was three thousand um, pounds, which is nothing. But back then, it seemed like a lot of money to me. Uh, and I saw this award, and I was thinking, well, actually, I've I've got a graduate collection here. You know, I've done it. I've made it. It's here. Well, I might as well just enter this thing. 
and I the first year I, I received a highly like highly commendation and it was at the Savoy Hotel and it was quite high profile and I think they just said to me look you've got to enter again next year and I did and I I, I won the competition and things changed really quickly for me um Carolyn Collis who was the daughter of Joan Burstino Owens Browns was a judge um Michael Caine's wife was a judge David Emanuel was the chair you know there's quite a few people that yeah. knew people there and they then said look you know because you've won this award part of the award is we then sponsor you to go into trade fairs so we're going to be taking you to Paris to Paris Fashion Week and you know to me it just seemed bananas but but also quite <laughs> amazing an amazing experience yeah because uh, I mean I, I you know when you look at St Martin's and the Royal College yeah. this is back then you know St Martin's had done you know they produced John Galliano John Flett yeah. um and all those kids that were coming through coming out when I was coming out of the Royal Alexander McQueen, Cockerwick, Lundell, Clements Ribeiro. Yep. You know, there was there was literally so many of them. It was so, so talented and so good, yeah. all setting up their own labels. And I think generally the consensus was students that wanted to go to the Royal didn't want to be, didn't want to have their own label. They just wanted to go and get really good jobs yeah. with really good brands. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, learn, learn from the company um, and maybe one day do your own thing. But that wasn't the aspiration. And I think for me, that was my thinking. But this, all this stuff, sort of happened to me, and I just went. I just went with the energy. I just thought, well, you know, it's ha it's happening, so I may as well just do it. And and on the back of that, I uh, somebody who was was a buyer who had been asked by the DTI, which is the Department of Trade and Industry, they were setting up something in Japan, which was called Action Japan, mm -hmm. which was a really high profile event in the British Embassy, and um. You know, if you look at the history of British designers, the Japanese are the reason why most British designers are in business, you know, because they're the ones that have grown their business and sustained their business, yeah. you know. So Japan is such an important market for the Brits. And Paul Smith, Margaret Howell, you know, Vivian Westwood, they were all really established in Japan. And I, I think the idea was that there was perhaps a new wave, potentially, that could come through. Yeah. Um, and I was taken out there with Philip Tracy, who, even though he was very famous and very successful, hadn't broken Japan. Um, Adina Rone, she was selected, and Amanda Wakeley as well, who also hadn't broken Japan, who was doing very well at the time. And I went out there as like the baby. You know, I was 12 <laughs> months out of college. And it just was, it was unbelievable. I, 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 don't, I still don't quite understand, but the, the collection I showed out there, um, there was a company who was Burberry's um, licensing partner right. called Sanya Shopai, who were massive, absolutely massive. And the, when I got back, I received this message through Mitsui, the trading company who did all the finance deals for Sanya, that the president of Sanya Shopai wanted to license Toby Clark. And it's really strange. You know, this is a good thing for if, if it happens to young designers it's it's really strange because you know you you haven't even had time to understand who you are yourself you know yeah. like 12 months in down the line yeah. and I was I was sort of slightly hijacked a bit by a gentleman called Edward Lehman that had taken us out there and said look Toby you need to come into my office which was next door to Harrods um I need to talk to you because I know the president really really well 
um, and I want to be your conduit for this deal. And Edwards was lovely. He was a lovely man. But I think he could see that the potential, you know, that what that deal could go on to become. And I've walked into his offices and he said to me, oh, I've just come back from a meeting with Phil Knight in Nike. And I was just like, it's very difficult to take all that on board when you're pretty, and I was 24, 25. um, And he started saying, look, you know, we're going to have Toby Clark umbrellas. We're going to have Toby Clark glasses. We're going to have Toby Clark luggage. Wow. And it was, it was, just crazy um and i had with me a lady called pauline Wynne jones who she was, she was a tutor in liverpool a fashion tutor she'd also been jimmy Orr's designer and she was also a judge at the welsh fashion awards who had very kindly said look i've got a little factory in north wales i'd like to make your clothes which she, she started to do she came with me to this meeting and she sort of just said to edward look it's a no it's a no um, and I agreed with her. I, I didn't want. I didn't want to be licensed. But it's kind of strange because I don't know. I wonder what would have happened if I'd said yes. I suppose it's what I'm saying because it's it's strange. You know, you, yeah. you if I, maybe if I'd been 35 or 40, that's normally when it probably would have happened. But it happened to me at a very young age. And you know, I didn't. I didn't even know. You know, I had, th- I had three or four stockists. But a license deal is, you know, anyway, that that was a quite quite a, like a life moment, I suppose. Yeah. It also sounds a bit, um, you know, at that age, right, it, it must have been quite scary as well. Yeah, I I think, I think on, on reflection, I remember being, we were, we were in Japan, we were taken onto a sofa. It was a bit like the David Frost interview, right. Right. the equivalent in Japan. And there was, I don't know, like, 10 million people listening to the same and each one of us was interviewed by this man, by this Japanese journalist on his couch and it was Japanese business television or something right. and then there was a, there was um Japanese Vogue came and interviewed me and there's one particular girl I think she was fashion editor of Vogue and she said to me tell me about Toby Clark I want to know about Toby Clark that was her question and I, I just felt really uncomfortable about that because I thought well hang on I can't decipher between whether you're asking me my personality, who yeah. I am, yeah, or, or my clothing, yeah. you know. And for me, I felt a slight discomfort. And I think some people are naturally really comfortable in that space yeah. and they really want their name to be known by lots and lots and lots of people. Yeah. And I think what I realised was actually I quite like being just in the background, you know, just out of yeah. sight, yeah. doing the work, but not necessarily people knowing who I am. It's, it's sort of, I quite like that position. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think that was probably when I learned that that was, that was the thing that the balance is as well is I think sometimes you need to step out of the limelight. I step out of the shadow and get a little bit of the limelight. You need to mm. find the balance because yeah. otherwise it's, you know, it's, it's not quite, you don't sort of fulfill your potential, less, but, um, but yeah, back then it was it was fascinating to experience it. It really was quite interesting, and and um, you know the the world was so different. You know, I, was, I sort of think about young designers today setting up their businesses, yeah. and they can pretty well be anywhere they want to be, pretty well. You know, with the, with the ability to sell on an Instagram shop or whichever platform they use, there isn't that kind of conversation where someone is saying well why aren't you in that city or why aren't you there it's like well it doesn't matter as long as 
your product is amazing and you've got good aesthetics and good values and you care about materials and the planet yeah, yeah, and all that absolutely. sort of stuff, sustainability, all those yeah. conversations. If you're doing that, I think people are very receptive anyway. Um, so it's great. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's sort of, it gives everyone a chance, I suppose, is what I'm saying. You know, the whole world has a chance to follow their dreams, which is yeah. really good. Do you think it's much easier now than it was then? Um, I don't know if I'd say the word easier because I suppose, you know, every year there's more people on this earth. So every year there's more brands, there's more people starting, there's more yeah. competition, there's a bigger market. So in that sense, I'd say, no, it's just as hard now or even harder now than it was then. Yeah. Um, but I think the challenges that would face someone today are different to the challenges I faced. Yeah. And my challenge was... A, I set up a design studio in my village, my own little village in Gresford in North Wales. Mm -hmm. And that was radical. It was totally radical to do that. Um, and then I was saying to the Welsh government, you know, if you really are serious about making things in Wales, then we're going to need a factory. Yeah. And you're going to need to put a lot of money into building that factory because Absolutely. that factory is going to need to make really nice clothes yeah. and for other people other than myself. So it's going to need to be an amazing factory. And um, that kind of strategic thinking, I guess, mm -hmm. was important. Yeah. Um, but the difficulty was, you know, when you're buying all your materials and you're going off to Paris or you're going off to Italy and finding the mills and discovering who they all are, yeah. you're still faced by minimums. I mean, any yeah. any designer will tell you that's difficult yeah. when you're faced. You've got to buy 200 metres yeah. or 300 metres. Yeah. And often, you know, the, the, your wholesale, you don't have a shop when you're a young designer, so you're wholesaling. Yeah. And the wholesalers don't really care whether you have excess stock. They just choose what they want to buy, how yeah. many pieces. Yeah. And you end up with 60 metres left over or 100 metres left over. Yeah. And at, you know, 15 or 20 pounds a metre, that's thousands of pounds that go into your stock inventory. Um, and my father was an accountant and he used to just look at it and say, economically, this isn't making sense. You're going, you've got far too much stock. You can't survive buying all this stock. You've got to get rid of the stock. Um, but as soon as you sell off the stock, it's like a car, it depreciates. So I used to cut up all my fabric into two meters and package it all. And there was a there was a, a company in London where I used to sell it all off. But, you know, the time that went into packaging all that fabric yeah, up into two meter work. lengths, so students or people that were dressmakers could buy it, took an awful lot of time. Yeah. Um, so that was really difficult. And if you compare that to really interesting business model like painter jacket yeah. who are so clever yeah. who are selling a quantity that they won't start producing that the quantity until they've sold it all yeah you know that's to me, that's, that, that's, amazing. that's just a stroke of genius yeah. um you know that wasn't available to mm -hmm. me when i was starting yeah. um but if you can do it successfully you know you can eliminate all those those economic challenges yeah. um which actually destroy businesses that's that's the reality you know so many businesses uh, had to stop because they weren't getting paid by wholesalers so the cash flow was too difficult or they were carrying too much stock and couldn't afford to reinvest in the new season because they had too much stock yeah. you know from the previous and um, yeah yeah you're right um i think I do think it's um, it's a different way of doing things now. Um, but at the same yeah. time, I feel, you know, there is a lot of brands out there at the moment, independent ones, mm -hmm. um, and I've seen more than ever after COVID, actually, which is great. 
which is fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. at the same time, it's um, you know, it's it's nice to see that because it's like I don't see the big brands so much. Well, I don't keep an eye on the big brands so much. I keep more eye on the smaller brands because it's because everyone mm-hmm. the smaller brands are coming out with some genius innovation of menswear you know Mm -hmm. and which is great to see do you feel like you know with there is no platform for menswear shows or trade shows in this country at the moment in in uk or wales or anywhere do you think we should have something like this here well i guess you know it's like um it's like supply and demand, isn't it? I think if there is enough people, enough consensus of people who want something enough, it would happen. And the only reason I guess why it's not happening is because there must be a, a an opinion that to put that event on yeah. and the expense of putting it on yeah. wouldn't economically provide enough money for those brands to support it and back it. Because right, um, okay. I know they have had, you know, the London Men's Fashion Week, and they have yeah. tried that. Yeah. But I presume they must think either they can get their sales through the showrooms or by showing in Milan or Paris. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly fine for them. Um, but I think I think it's sad because, you know, like Britain has got such incredible exactly. heritage in menswear. I mean, exactly. extraordinary heritage. Yeah. You know, right from Savile Row at the extreme and the bespoke kind yeah. of suit stuff, yeah. right up to sort of street culture yeah. and. You know, casual culture and all the things you know that I go. I guess would have gone on. You know, in fishing ports, yeah. all those. There's so much stuff that is the rich heritage of Scottish knitwear. There's, there's, yeah, there's just masses. There's masses in Britain. All the mills, all the cotton stuff that happened in Lancashire. There's so much that is is relevant to good menswear. That I, I, I yeah, I think it's it's just it's sad that it's not it's not here and happening. Um, because it deserves to, it deserves to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was thinking exactly the same the way you thought, um, just said, um, because I think we've got such amazing heritage here, and it's really sad that we don't, you know, there's nothing going on here with menswear, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's really difficult with even the smaller brands, you know, um, getting everything together, flying out to, you know, or going on, on Euro start to Paris, to Milan, to all of these trade shows abroad. I mean, it costs a lot of money as well because it's not free. But yet yet again, all the heritage, all the brands, all the, you know, everything that we have here, we're not showing it in a sense. We have to go out and show it. And it's sad because, you, you know, I remember when I was coming out the Royal, I mean, it was like, you know, McQueen and everyone else that we were looking up to, Joe Casey Hayford, you know, all yep. of these guys we was looking up to. But at the same time, you know, with the heritage brands, Dunhill and Burberry, yeah, they're heritage brands, right? Savile Row. But even now, yep. I'm thinking about it, you know, there's nothing. There's like really nothing. It's just gone, boom, gone, <laughs> you know? And you just feel yeah. like it's quite sad. Because yeah. you hear well, more what's going in men's Paris Fashion Week, Milan Fashion Week, um, you know, other countries, all the other ones that are, you know, on the spotlight, you hear about it more. But then you don't hear about anything like in London Men's Fashion Week. You know, it's it's 
it's so sad. I, I don't know. I, I feel like somebody needs to look into this properly and say, you know, you know, to do something about it. Because obviously we've got one of the best universities. We've got loads of new brands and we've got no loads of, you know, creative people here. Why can't we do something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you know, Samila, maybe, maybe you should fly that flag. You know, you've, you've got a podcast about menswear, you know, maybe, maybe do it, you know, cause I, I kind of think in life that the people that do things are the people that actually make things happen. And, you know, you've obviously seen that you, you're yeah. feeling that. And yeah. I'd hundred percent support you. You know, I'll, I'll help you. Let just let's try and do it because yeah, um, I'd, it needs I'd, it needs it needs to be done. Shakers. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of people that would be really brilliant and get behind it. I'm sure there would be. I mean, um, I would love to, Toby. But I, I the other thing like, I think. Just, sorry, I just feel like that. You know, there's loads of us, right? Um, my background with menswear hasn't been fantastic in in a sense but at the same time the passion for menswear has been there from driving from long time and i i think yeah. you know um yeah I, I struggled so much to be in menswear but at the same time it hasn't given me bitterness it's actually given me strength from all the struggles i've come from because i haven't stopped loving menswear you know mm. i'm never gonna yeah. stop loving menswear because it's as my father used to say it's in her blood it's mixed in her blood you can't get yeah. out of her you know and he's right yeah. and i feel yeah i feel like because with this podcast right i've spoken to a lot of people in menswear and and i see a lot of british menswear brands and all i hear is everyone going out and you're thinking well wait a minute we've got the most amazing universities i've come out of one of the most amazing universities you said there was only seven of you guys at the Royal, right? There was only 10 of us. There was only 10 people. Yeah. And and you know how Royal takes people on. They see your portfolio before they see you. And there's a massive room, yeah. a massive hall where you leave your portfolio there. Yeah. And, yeah. and they don't even look at you. And they, there's a little note to say you've passed and you can come through to the second round of the interview. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's how it was for me as well. And when I saw that second piece of paper, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to the, I'm, I've got a chance to get to the Royal. I really do truly think we should. And I would, and I don't know who to go to, but I think we should, Toby, if you're up yeah. for it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll come along with you to the meetings. Absolutely, I will. And I, I think the other thing that I think is, is relevant to the conversation is that, and it's, it's sad, but I think, you know, Britain has lost an awful lot of really brilliant manufacturing. Yeah. And I know it started Easily. again. I know there's been, you know, some amazing regeneration of that. You know, and I'm, I'm not dismissing that at all because it's fantastic. But I think there's some really big factories. Like, you know, if you look, think Aquascutum used to have an amazing yeah. factory that made yeah. amazing raincoats yeah. that sold all around the world. And that's completely gone. Yeah. You know, and there's other, there's lots of examples like that. And I think if you lose your manufacturing base, then you're losing quite a key strength in yeah. your, in your armour as to... Yeah you know, producing those things because it's, at the end of the day, you can be the best designers in the world, but you've got to produce product that yeah. is as good as your design. Um, and if that stuff has stopped being made, you know, it's it makes it more difficult. And I know that, as I said, there has been some great examples of people starting to make things really well again in Britain. And that's 
fantastic. That's fantastic. But I think when we started to lose those factories from the 70s through to the millennium, yeah. I think it did have an effect. And I think if they'd, if the, if they'd managed to stay and these people hadn't gone offshore and run, run over to cheaper labour, um, the conversation now would be would be very different. Yeah, you're right because yeah. um, because I knew a few manufacturers and before COVID I knew them, and after COVID they've gone. Yeah. And it's sad. And there was one manufacturer that was there for about forty years, I think, and he went. Yeah. And just before COVID. Yeah. And it was quite sad to see them go because I think they were the last ones standing in, you know still doing yeah. and they were doing smaller production for smaller brands and all that stuff mm -hmm. and um once they went can you imagine what was happening with the brands and like you know finding a manufacturer that would do minimums um you know it's so difficult yeah. Yeah. it's really really difficult trying to convince manufacturers to do minimums um yeah it is difficult I wanted to ask you um you are the ambassador of the campaign for wool are you still in New Zealand? In New Zealand. In New Zealand. And yeah. and yeah. I was reading a little bit about how you for the what was it during the COVID where you actually lived in certain you know clothing that you wouldn't buy and everything and you just wanted to see how it you know for um for yeah. I mean yeah. I I I'm one of those people who do, I must admit I don't buy clothing much um I actually live in. If I'm comfortable in one thing, I would probably live it, live, live it, live into it so much that it would literally fall apart. Then I would get rid of it. But even though when it's falling exactly. apart, I will still try and put it back together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? exactly. Well, that I mean, that's that you know that brings joy to my heart because that's to me that's what good clothing is about. Is yeah. you know comfort is so important in clothing, and exactly. that's not just physical comfort, emotional comfort. And I think the more you wear something, the more you grow to love it because you, you know, you develop attachments with things, yeah. don't you, with garments. Yeah. And I think like if you if you say to someone, what's your favorite things in your wardrobe, they'll always pull out the things that they wear the most. And, you know, that's just normal. And there'll be other things that they hardly wear um, that is not meaningless to them, but has a lot less value. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I, in, in that example, you just said about what I was doing during the lockdown I'll just, I'll, I'll just give you some background to it so I think I've been in the industry for you know 20 odd years and I you know I'm very kind of I'm a huge nature lover and I'm not an eco warrior by any means but no. I care deeply about the planet and I you know I've gone into an awful lot of factories some amazing factories some tiny factories some huge factories and I've seen some things that really disturbed me um that there was one particular factory in Mauritius that was making for Ralph Lauren and I knew he was selling those polish shirts you know Madison Avenue for whatever it was $200 and I knew that in that factory I, I was I was taken to it by the British government um, and I knew they were they were paying them like you know like $6 a for it for a polo and I, I actually felt physically sick you know and it was all over it was an overhead um, cable operation so that the machinists weren't sort of moving around they were just pulling their arms up to pull the garments down as they sewed them oh, and I was I was horrified by it um really really shocked um and that was a memory that stuck with me and I think as the conversation with the planet sort of started yeah, to yeah. develop and I yeah. started to think about it I started to think well even though I've been really full 
fortunate to work at the, the nicer end of the industry, you know, with lovely materials and lovely factories, it still had an impact. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, probably a lot of those things that I, I designed were things that the customers didn't necessarily need. They were like luxury items. You know, they already had some nice shirts. They already had some nice jackets. They already had nice things. They just desired them because they were tempted by how beautiful they were. And I started to feel like, well, maybe I should, you know, address some of that stuff. And maybe I will make a personal commitment. Um, you know, and I, it was just really about myself, I think. And I just decided that whatever I was wearing that day, I would effectively wear for the rest of my life. Um, that was that was what that was the decision that was the plan and that was when I was on Waiheke in New Zealand and I thought well this is quite, quite interesting from a social point of view because as an experiment is every day these garments will start evolving yeah. they'll start changing they'll start disintegrating they'll start wearing down and I can just patch repair them and whatever I choose to patch patch repair them with will in itself become like a form of art or a form of expression. And yeah, yeah. Um, I did it for about, I think I did it for about 407 days continuously. And I would hand wash what I was wearing in rainwater. Um, they would dry in the sun. While that was happening, I'd wrap a blanket around myself because I didn't have any other clothes to put on. And it was fasc- it was fascinating. It really was. And, um, I, I, I stopped because I ended up having to move um, across New Zealand and it became a bit difficult for me to carry on doing it. Um, and I was really, really quite sad that I stopped because it, it was something that really meant a lot to me. But I've still got all those garments and you know, they were kind of archived. Um, but Lidovich Idol Courts, you know, the trend forecaster, she found out that I was doing it and asked if I'd be part of her World Hope Forum. Um, which was really nice. Um, and I had lots of amazing conversations with people, you know, just, just by doing something like that, because I guess it was quite radical, but yeah. it came from the right place. It came from a, well, I really care about the planet and I don't want to buy anything else. You know, yeah. I'm happy with these things. Yeah. Um, and let's just see how we get on. You know, is it possible? Um, but something that was actually quite funny was um, there was one day when I think like maybe – it might be, might be in the postman or someone who came and knocked on the door and my clothes are drying in the sun and I had a blanket and I was thinking, well, this is a bit weird, you know, if I go and answer the door. <laughs> so I slipped on a yellow T-shirt that I had in, um, that I bought from a, a secondhand T-shirt that I bought from a vintage store. And having worn the same clothes for that many days, putting a yellow T-shirt on, it really felt, like I'd had a psychedelic trip or something. It was absolutely bananas. It was just like my brain was just going into over, over, you know, overdrive because it was like, wow, like what, 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 what yeah, are you doing? Exactly. This, this color is like shining, actually, yeah. shining out. Yeah, uh, it was fascinating, actually. Yeah. Wow, that's a story altogether, you know. Um, and it's really fascinating how. You know, with clothes. I mean, I'm one of those people who doesn't like going shopping. Right. Um, I, I, I just get to a point where if I like something, I want to wear it and I want to wear it in a sense where it's going to last a long time. You know, I've got to that level now um, and I don't buy things so much at all. Actually, I hardly buy anything actually clothing wise. If I like it and I want to buy it, as long as it's going to last a long time, I'll buy it. Otherwise, there's no point. You know, 
and 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 it's also looking after the clothes as well you know if you look after it it will stay for yeah. a long time it's yeah. just basically looking after it i wanted to go back into your creative side um you worked with loads of yeah brands, absolutely you've you worked with loads yeah. of brands yeah and, yeah and i would love to know how yeah. how you you know how does it with all the brands that you've worked with right so Toby, I've wanted to know about your creative side and how you go about it. Um, it's fascinating to know when you're talking to other designers because you, you know, you feel like, oh yeah, I do the same. You know, we're on the same level here when we're doing mm -hmm. creative side. So how do you go about in designing menswear? Okay, well, I I've never been a big lover of themes. I've never really responded right. to the idea of having a theme for a collection, so right. I don't do that at all. Um, but I do get fascinated by people and objects. And I, I suppose the, if, if you wanted to use the word theme, I would say it's because I've seen a person, which might be historical or contemporary, wearing something um, or an object that yeah. I think is just so right for whatever's going through my head yeah. um, that I lock onto it. And from that point, it becomes like a reference point. Um, I mean, for example, um, during seasons at Margaret I saw an image of William Burroughs and he was yeah. wearing a hat and an overcoat and he had his typewriter and and a piece of you know short piece of prose that had been he typed on his typewriter and all of that made a great deal of sense to me and I thought that's the nearest essence I can think of anything that is theme related um, yeah. and I started doing bits like that and I think the women's team got quite into it and they did bits like that. And then I think the fashion stylist for the show took it on. So then there was elements of that William Burroughs thing in, in the women's show as well. Yeah. And it just, it, it's, it's small and it's kind of discreet. I, I don't like things to be too literal, but that sometimes that reference is really not. Um, once I've found something, the most important thing that I always do, and I always tell other people, if you want to do it well, do this, is choose the fabric, get your yeah. material sorted, yeah. and really understand who who the right suppliers are, are specialise in those materials, who are the best at the drill, who are the best at the worsted wool, you know, who are the best at the corduroy, and you know, you might need to see three suppliers who will do corduroy, mm -hmm. and then figure out which one's the best corduroy, mm -hmm. which whale is the best you know all that stuff and once you've once you've sorted that out and you know your fabric then I start designing um and thinking about which shape which style would go best into that cloth um you know some people will start on the mannequin with a shape and then choose the fabric to go into the shape I would never do that I'd always always I'd always go the other way and I think there's also a logistical uh, reason as well is that one of the problems you can have is, as a designer or a brand is securing fabric and, you know, and getting those fabric deliveries in on time yeah. to manufacture so they can drop in the season on time. Yeah. And you've got to be so sure that the supplier is giving you the, your, their support and, and also that the fabric is one that they've run before so that you're not going to get quality problems and production problems. So if you can get your fabric nailed, I think it also makes your life a lot easier as well further yeah. down the line. Um, so, yeah, I'd say material was very much part of the process. And then in terms of the, the styles and all that kind of stuff, um, I, you know, I, I enjoyed working on a mannequin 
Kenneth Linzel, I liked it. Um, but I also really liked going into the factory because you'd find that factories who specialised in things would have all that set up there as well. And if you're working with a pattern cutter, let's say, in the factory, you don't want to have middlemen because middlemen will actually yeah. make will make sense of what you're trying to say as a designer. But if you work with the source, which is the person who's going to make that pattern, yeah. you can communicate exactly what you want. You can observe yeah. it. You can get it just right. So that was a really good way of doing it. Um, and, and also in terms of the starting point, you know, I, I, I you know, obviously like, like a lot of designers do, I'd go to flea markets and I'd go to vintage stores and I'd yeah. pick up things that, you know, are authentic, but maybe haven't been seen for a while and just reintroduce them in new materials and new colors. And that kind of mix was also really nice. Um, and depending on the brand as well, which brands, you know, I was working with, they'd always have a signature, like they'd always have uh, certain things that that would, you know, really capture what they, their essence of what they were. Um, and they'd be really important, you know, as part of the creative process. Like if I said, you know, a Margaret Howell, Paris Tweed, unwashed, deconstructed jacket, anyone that likes Margaret would sort of get what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at Too Good, they did, were doing these this great cut you know unbleached will you know so certain brands lock on to their materials and that's mm -hmm. all also their signature and you know if, if in that creative process you know being a good designer you kind of it's well it's kind of sensory isn't it you yeah you kind of figure all that out and, yeah. all out and then add your little own nuances each season yeah as you go along true um very true i think fabric is very important i think um you know how you say the fabric is so important. I, I I believe that as well. I think um you know when you look at the fabric and I sometimes I sometimes come up with themes. I don't know why because it's like a story to me, and I go away into that story and it works really well with me and with that kind of theme that I'm trying to create. And I think I've always had that in my head, like being a storyteller. Um yeah you know and I've always I don't know why but that's kind of. The theme always, um, the theme's more, the theme is important, but at the same time, so is the fabric, the colour, the silhouette. Those three things are very important yeah. to me, and I, I always focus on those kind of things. And there's no, no there's no yeah. way of. Um, and and I think. Go on, sorry. Oh, I, was just, I was just going to say that, you know, and, and also depending how that final thing yeah let's say let's call it a collection you because know, a collection seasonal collection um how that's presented you know whether that is a static showroom or whether it's on the catwalk yeah. you know to a big load of people um there's a final impression isn't there as well yeah. and all the elements that go into that final impression are, are also really really crucial because that's the that's the judgment when the fashion press or the yeah. buyers or just the, the people that love the brand look at it and you know they immediately either fall in love with it or think oh it's not as good this season you know it's not hasn't moved me this season and yeah. you know so you've got to spend quite a lot of time as well getting that final bit really really good yeah. um so people leave people leave you know with a really really positive energy from seeing it who do you think is um who do you think at the moment in menswear is getting it very right brand wise I mean, I I do find that a difficult question. Um, okay. 
I guess you know one thing as one thing is aesthetic, and another thing is environmental. Yeah. Because if I said environmental, I would say certainly someone like Painter yeah. is doing it right because yeah. they're thinking about the that they've thought of a solution to the, to the problems within the industry yeah. to where they can sell product without any waste whatsoever. That's fantastic. You know, that's really great because there's no waste. So that's really brilliant. So I think that's a really good solution. Um, but aesthetic, it's, it's, it's hard. Cause I mean, I, you know, I've gone through periods when I, where I really, really loved fashion and high fashion and, you know, Christopher Lemaire was doing amazing things. Yeah. I used to really love Ray Karakubo, you know, in the nineties, I just, I was obsessed by these people. And I think in the last five years, I've not felt that level of obsession. I've, I've not really, cause it hasn't, I've, I've sort of started thinking, yes, but it's just clothing. And it's, it's, I don't know that it's necessarily fixing what I see as, as, as a, a real problem to yeah. the planet. You know, it's just aesthetic. It's not, you know, solving these sorts of problems that are important to me. So I find it quite hard to say who, who's, who I would really look up to and say, that's amazing. Who's getting it right. I mean, I, I was, but I was walking through, we, we go to Parliament Hill farmer's market every yeah. Saturday morning. And right. I don't know if the guy was a student or I don't know, but there's a guy that, uh, he was an Asian guy, and he was wearing this most, this most incredible pleated, uh, three-quarter length um, wool worsted skirt, and he just looked amazing. He looked amazing, and it, it stopped me in my tracks. You know, I was busy with my um, cauliflower or my broccoli or something like that, <laughs> and I just stopped and I just thought, that's fantastic because, you know, there was probably a time when that would be considered so socially inappropriate, you know, yeah, that menswear yeah, wouldn't yeah, allow yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but he just looked brilliant and it, it wasn't a big deal. I think he was wearing a trainers and a t-shirt or something, but I, I felt really like, you know, I wanted to go up to him and say, like, excuse me, what are you wearing? Because that's, that's <laughs> you look, you look so good, you know, but, um, so things like that, I think I, I kind of get excited about when I see something out yeah. of context, you know, I've actually yeah. said that to men, actually, with the ones that I've actually come across who have worn so something so amazing that I've actually stopped them and said, um, I love what you're wearing. I think it's amazing. And it's like, yeah, being a woman, it's like, you know, they're probably, ah, I've seen them getting embarrassed at the same time, um, totally going red. Um, but, yeah. you know, you're just like saying, no, I love the, you know, the jacket that you're wearing. It's amazing. Or, you know, when sometimes you see something, a clothing on someone that, or the style, the way they're wearing it, and you feel like, and I do normally go up and just say, I think it's amazing what you're wearing, or you look amazing. Literally look amazing. I yeah, that's pretty that's cool. That's really nice. Because, you know, it's, it is really nice. I mean, I'm quite shy, so I, sp I suppose that's, that was the only point where I probably, I didn't want to freak the guy out you know kind of obsessing over his skirt because he might for 10 years I don't really know but for me I thought wow that's just of the moment it looks so good um and it was it was kind of even it was it was a narrow place it was just everything was just really nice um and I thought yeah you know because I suppose you know if you look at let's say the Scots that were yeah. killed yeah exactly. and that's you know yeah. very traditional thing yeah but this was a different feeling yeah. um, but it was the right feeling it felt really nice yeah what would you say to someone who is starting up at the moment with, you know, there's so many little brands and there's more brands probably 
you know, a lot of students coming um, out at the moment, ex-students, and thinking, you know, I'm going to do my own brand and things like that. What would you say to them to look out for? Yeah, what I say to them? Um, well, I'd first of all ask, you know, if it was just a normal conversation, I'd ask them why Why are you doing it? Yeah. You know, and what's, what, what is it about it that you, you either love or what's motivated you to actually do it? And that's always a really interesting question because some people don't actually know if you ask them that question. Yeah. And then I sort of think, well, you're going to struggle. Um, but the ones that really know why they're doing it, I always think, okay, you've got a chance because that's so important. You know, you, your raison d'etre or your purpose behind it is so crucial to the success of what you're doing. And so I'd ask them that question. Um, and then I think I'd ask them, like, logistical questions like um if you want to do this thing if you want to start, set up this product or business or brand or label um what are you making where are you making it what's it going to cost and have you thought about all those components that need to be so good to actually break through that market which is so saturated mm -hmm. in order to actually sell what you do mm -hmm. uh, um, and, I, and then on that, on whatever they said, I would voluntarily, voluntarily start giving them some tips and ideas of things. That, well, you could try that person. You could try that person. You know, because a lot of the th a lot of the difficulties, I suppose, that young designers have is they don't know all the answers because they haven't had the experience. Yeah. And it needs people to give them that bit of support. Oh, you know, yeah. just to say, well, that's an amazing fabric mill. If you like that, try those people. Or, or if you're trying to do a specialist yeah. raincoat, have you tried that factory? You know, sort of. Just giving them a bit of knowledge, I think, is also would also be really helpful to them. Absolutely. And any regrets in menswear, Toby? Any regrets? <laughs> um, no, I've I've got no regrets whatsoever. I I kind of I don't I don't really do regrets. I mean, I've had some difficult moments in yeah. in my career, you know, that I feel sad happened. But I don't regret them because they just did happen, you know, and you, you always have to reinvent yourself and you always have to move on. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't I don't have that kind of regret. I wish it hadn't happened. It's just, well, it did happen, you know, and you, you've kind of, you have to find an strength to, you know, repurpose yourself and say, okay, that's fine and try that, you know, move on and do that or, you know, just reframe or re-pitch the way you see things. Um, and that's actually... You know, I think it's really not a really nice thing to do sometimes to have a, a blank piece of paper, you know, and sort of think, okay, that, that was a period that is behind me and now this is the, the future period. And on that note, Toby, I'd just like to thank you for talking to me on Menswear by Warren podcast. It's been an absolute honour and amazing. And I think what you said as a blank canvas, that's the future. Um, and yeah, you do what you want, future, yeah. you know. It's an amazing way of putting it, and it's it's been amazing to talking to you. It really, really has been um, amazing. Thank you so much, Toby, for coming on to Menswear by Warren Podcast. It's been a huge honour. Thank you, Samila. I've really loved it. It's been really nice chatting to you, and uh, to all the menswear people out there, keep doing menswear because it's an amazing career. It really is an amazing career, so I hope anyone that's thinking about it, you know, just do it. Thank you. And I think it is. It's an amazing career and it's an amazing part to be in, be a part of uh, menswear. It's, um, it's probably one of the most passionate things that we ever 
are doing or having to do, in a sense. Thank you, Samila.